Hi everyone, welcome to the Internist's Guide 2, a limited series dedicated to high yield guidelines in internal medicine. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Andrew Ha from Cardiology on the CCS CHRS Comprehensive Guidelines for the Management of Atrial Fibrillation, released in 2020. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Andrew Ha, a cardiac electrophysiologist at the University Health Network. Dr. Ha's interests and clinical focus is in atrial fibrillation. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ha. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me. So I'm going to start by asking if you could tell us a little bit about how atrial fibrillation ties into your clinical practice. Great. So I'm a heart rhythm specialist and electrophysiologist. Uh, you know, the bread and butter of uh, EP electrophysiology EP is atrial fibrillation. Uh, we're involved in basically all aspects of managing these patients. Specifically, we get involved in, in difficult-to-manage AFib cases and also uh, giving advice on anticoagulation, especially the challenging ones. And thirdly, um, patients who need uh, invasive management, such as ablation, uh, when they have symptomatic AF. So those are the areas that electrophysiologists get involved so Dr. Ha, I just want to ask you a little bit about rate versus rhythm control. So thinking about the CCS guidelines 2020 for atrial fibrillation, when is rate versus rhythm control recommended? Okay, thanks. I think the, the first uh, decision point for, from an internist perspective is to decide whether this is uh, stable versus you know unstable AFib. So if it's hemodynamically unstable, acute atrial fibrillation, the, the right thing to do is an urgent cardioversion, electrically most likely. If someone has atrial fibrillation and it's hemodynamically stable, and, and you see this patient, let's say in a clinical, like in an outpatient clinic, a lot of it is driven by the type of atrial fibrillation a patient has. Is the patient having paroxysmal atrial fibrillation or persistent atrial fibrillation? So if someone has paroxysmal AFib, meaning that he or she uh, has atrial fibrillation you know, a few hours a week, a few hours a day, several times a week, um, then you assess in your mind and talking to the patient how symptomatic the patient is. Is there a lot of AFib to a point where the patient is really bothered and affected in terms of his or her energy levels, quality of life? Or it's fairly low burden in terms of, you know, it happens once every six months, let's say. If someone has a, a low burden uh, atrial fibrillation in terms of very, very infrequent and not really that symptomatic, you know, it's not wrong to just simply observe because sometimes the drugs in of themselves can cause side effects. Let's say the patient ha doesn't have a lot of atrial fibrillation, but the, these episodes are symptomatic, um, for instance, a few times a year. One option to pursue is the so-called pill in a pocket approach where you prescribe a type 1C antiarrhythmic drug in addition with an AV node blocker to be used on a PRN basis. Personally speaking, I find this approach useful if someone only has a couple of uh, AF episodes a year. It's probably not as pragmatic if someone is having weekly episodes of AF and are using these drugs on a PRN basis on a, on a fairly frequent basis. If that's the case, they probably should be on daily medication use. Um, so that's for patients of low recurrence burden. For patients of a high recurrence burden, so in other words, multiple episodes of AF, long AF episodes, or very symptomatic from the atrial fibrillation, I think the, 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 that approach, we would uh, use uh, an antiarrhythmic drug because these patients are, are um, symptomatic from the AF and clearly restoration and maintenance of sinusoidal will, will be beneficial for them. So in those patients with high burden atrial fibrillation and clearly being in sinusoidal is way better, we would prescribe them with you know, antiarrhythmic drugs on a daily basis. 
the other option is an ablation. Typically speaking, ablation is reserved for patients in whom antirhythmic drugs are ineffective, not tolerated, or not preferred. One example will be athletes or people who are young and very active who don't want to be on drugs on a long-term basis. Um, let's switch to the other type of atrial fibrillation. So these are patients with persistence, long-standing persistence, or permanent atrial fibrillation. So these are patients with atrial fibrillation on a continuous basis, 24-7, 365, sometimes for months, sometimes for years. So the, the first-line approach for these patients with um, chronic ongoing continuous AF will be rate control. So uh, an AV node blocker, beta blocker, dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, or digoxin, often you need more than one uh, rate control agents to, to, uh, to result in good rate control for the patients. To optimize rate control, uh, which I think we'll get into on a subsequent question, it's mainly symptom-based. Typically speaking, you want to uh, keep the rate below 100 beats per minute and also to make sure that the patient has uh, less symptoms because they're not tachycardic. If let's say uh, rate, rate control is inadequate, then you would proceed with rhythm control. And the first step we will use is a cardioversion. So you can refer them for an electrical cardioversion or load them with an antirhythmic drug, then refer for an electrical cardioversion. This is to see if restoration and maintenance of sinus rhythm would improve their energy levels, quality of life, and AF-related symptoms. The other op So let's say you have a patient with persistent AF and you initiate rate control and it doesn't work. As I said, we'll go to cardioversion. If cardioversion doesn't work or it, if it worked, but then it only lasted a, a couple of weeks and, and it comes back, then we'll have a real discussion with the patient on either long-term antiarrhythmic drug use or ablation at that point. Great. Thank you. And I know you already alluded to the fact that with thinking about rate control, we will focus on targeting symptom management and symptom burden. When might you implement a target heart rate or would you use a target heart rate as your method of assessment as to whether you've achieved uh, your goal with managing with rate control? Thanks. I, th I think uh, there's... It's, it's a very uh, popular topic we get referred on is, you know, what is the optimal rate control? Uh, based on clinical trials, you know, there was a trial uh, which, which randomized patients to either a strict or lenient rate control. So strict control being less than 80 beats per minute, lenient being less than 110 beats per minute. And what they found published in the New England Journal of Medicine was that there was no difference with respect to heart outcomes like stroke, heart failure, and mortality between a lenient and a uh, strict program. Uh, the biggest thing now, you know, when we try to achieve rate control is to, uh, to is twofold. One is, is to make sure that the patient is less symptomatic. And second is to prevent tachycardia-mediated cardiomyopathy. So those are the two key aspects of rate control. When you look at the guidelines, typically speaking, uh, the desired uh, target rate is less than 100 beats per minute at rest. Uh, certainly, uh, it depends on symptoms and also uh, presence of uh, left ventricular dysfunction. If the patient is still symptomatic in spite of having a rate of 90, we might go up on the rate control agent in terms, in terms of dose or add a second agent to try to see if we can get better rate control and hopefully improve symptoms. If let's say we see that the left ventricular systolic function is impaired, uh, and we suspect that this is related to tachycardia from atrial fibrillation, we would also be more aggressive with treating it with a lower rate at that time. Great, thank you. And you sort of spoke already to chemical cardioversion or when we're thinking about antiarrhythmic drugs, but I'm wondering a little bit more about electrical cardioversion. You mentioned its importance in the setting of 
an emergency setting where the patient may have hemodynamically unstable atrial fibrillation. I'm wondering if there are other circumstances where you might be thinking about electrical cardioversion. So I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Perfect. I think um, when I was training, you know, there's a a, a shifting sands in in terms of the field of rhythm control. I think probably in 10, 15 years, rhythm control will be first line. Now we're we're traditionally it's still a rate control strategy because of the affirm trial published in two thousand two showing that a strategy of rate control is no different than rhythm control medically in terms of uh, heart outcomes like stroke heart failure mortality. Recently, with the AFNet East four trial, it showed that there is actually a, a slight benefit in favor of ry- r- rhythm control for uh, recent detected AF less than one year. Uh, like new onsets uh, in terms of less stroke and less of these hard outcomes. So it's shifting sands in terms of being more aggressive. And I think we're seeing more and more of it. Patients are actually more receptive toward a more aggressive rhythm control strategy. So, you know, if, uh, so electrical cardioversion is one method of rhythm control. It is indicated for patients with ongoing AF. So someone with paroxysmal AF, we will not be offering because it's they're in and out of AFib. So if someone is in continu- continuous atrial fibrillation and you feel clinically that that restoration and maintenance of sinusitis would be beneficial, uh, then cardioversion would be indicated. Uh, so that's a judgment call, and you get a sense based on uh, symptoms. You know, if patients clearly describe, you know, two months ago they started feeling more short of breath, less energetic, and that coincides with the progression from from a paroxysmal to persistent. I think that's a very good clue that. The AFib is con- the ongoing AF is contributing to their impaired quality of life. The other situation we would strongly consider getting them into ba- back to sinus rhythm is uh, AF patients with LV dysfunction, because often if we're able to get them back into sinus rhythm, there's a good chance that their left ventricular systolic function would improve uh, because of being in sinus rhythm and because they're less tachycardic. So basically, cardioversion is indicated for patients with continuous AF and in whom restoration and maintenance of sinusitis would, in your opinion, improve the symptoms or improve their uh, heart function in terms of the LVEF. So in terms of uh, chemical versus electrical, I think either approach is good. Often, you know, at, at least in Canada, I think the, the, the first line option is, is uh, electrical cardioversion. Chemical cardioversion takes time and, you know, it's, it involves administration of a drug, which uh, some practitioners don't feel comfortable committing that patient to. Often actually is a hybrid. So we would actually pre-treat these patients with uh, an antiarrhythmic drug and then uh, refer them for a cardioversion. So if they convert in the interim, great. But if they don't, then at least they, have a, they would have been pre-treated because there's some good evidence from RCTs showing that if you pre-treat patients, let's say with amiodrone, it would markedly enhance the chance of success in terms of uh, cardioversion acutely and also preventing them from going back into atrial fibrillation. Great, thank you. Um, so you already sort of touched on the pill and pocket approach um, and the 2020 guidelines discuss requirements to fall within a category where you may be amenable to getting pill and pocket therapy and also discuss contraindications and monitoring for those who are using a pill and pocket approach. Um, when, when is this used and what are some of the contraindications or how might we assess a patient's response to this? Sure. Uh, so the pill in the pocket approach is a good strategy for patients with symptomatic AF, which are happening infrequently, perhaps a few times a year. 
if someone is getting AFib, you know, once a month or two, two or three times a month, I, I wouldn't recommend that strategy because it's just too, it's just not practical. And we tend to offer the strategy for patients uh, who are who have who are healthy generally and have a structurally normal heart. So the way it's prescribed is we prescribe a an, an AV node blocker, either a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker. Uh, take it, wait 30 minutes, and then the patient will, will uh, self-administer a type 1C antirhythmic drug, either flaconide 300 milligrams or propafenone 600 milligrams. And then um, uh, because there's some RCT showing that this approach can shorten the time of atrial fibrillation. Uh, contraindications of this drug are, um, you know, as you know, these type 1C antirhythmic drugs are considered contraindicated for patients with coronary disease. So if anyone with previous MI or presence of coronary disease, these types of drugs should be avoided because of the risk of proarrhythmia. In uh, the other patient population, we would like to avoid our, uh, our patients with structural heart disease because these drugs um, tend to be better for patients with normal hearts. If you have cardiomyopathy, LV dysfunction, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, there may be an increased risk of proarrhythmia. Uh, the first time we administered the pill in the pocket, we often ask patients to have it uh, done in a monitored setting. So often we would draft a letter, so they would bring to the emergency room saying that, hey, I'm prescribed this medication, and for the first time, I would like, you know, this, is, this needs to be done in a monitored setting. Because in some instances, these drugs can result in significant bradycardia and or hypotension, which requires monitoring and resuscitation if necessary. So you don't want the patient to be using this medication for the first time while they're traveling in a foreign country. So you want to make sure that it's being uh, done in a monitor setting to prove that it is safe in terms of no hypotension, uh, no proarrhythmia, and no bradycardia. So, uh, uh, as the first time. So that's generally the, the framework for use for using these drugs. That's helpful. And I remember reading for some of the classes of antiarrhythmics that a long QT might contraindicate use. Is that yeah, the case? Yeah. I think, um, to be honest, uh, you know, using one dose of the drug, you know, may not, you know, unless someone has a known history of torsad the point or like mm -hmm. a significantly elevated QT interval, 500 plus, if they're already on multiple QT prolonged drugs, we wouldn't prescribe this drug. If it's a, if it's not too, not too markedly prolonged, like less than 500 milliseconds, using it as a one-time deal is, is okay. I think obviously, uh, you know, th those are special considerations. Um, typically speaking, you know, if someone has long QT, they probably have structural heart disease. So these drugs, we wouldn't prescribe. If someone has isolated long QT syndrome, you know, suggestive of in inherited arrhythmia syndrome, let's say, you know, we probably should avoid these drugs as well. That makes sense. And if someone is on a pill and pocket approach, is there ongoing monitoring that they need, like in terms of blood work or things after they take the medications, or is it really just that monitoring in that in the first administration that you mentioned? Yeah, yeah, uh, just uh, monitoring during the during the AFib and the conversion if there is one. Uh, because of the fact that it's only a one one time deal and these drugs have short half lives usually we don't we don't ask them to be monitored with uh, ongoing ecgs or any blood work going forward thanks so 
talking a little bit about cardioversion, there is a algorithm in the new CCS 2020 guidelines on management of acute atrial fibrillation. Let's say you're in an emergency department setting. Can you outline for the listeners what the high yield points from this algorithm are? Thanks. You know, um, in the new in the CCS 2020 guidelines, you know, especially on the section on cardioversion, you know, it is still the 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 thing to do when someone has hemodynamically unstable atrial fibrillation or flutter. So we treat atrial fibrillation and flutter the same with respect to the acute treatments. Um, if you know, uh, so definitely, if someone is unstable, you need to cardiovert them electrically. Uh, if the the thing that's kind of a, a new a new twist and new information to the guidelines pertain to anticoagulation, uh, and uh, because there were some recent studies from it's called a Finn CV trial. So basically, this is a a series of papers published in Finland in which they have large cohorts of patients who underwent cardioversion and they track the outcomes. Most of these studies were retrospective in nature, but they're a large size and. It's the best data out there, so it's being used in informing the guidelines. So, th so there are guidelines, they're good data, but th there's some limitations given the retrospective nature of how uh, it was collected. So based from these findings, the CCS guidelines made some recommendations on uh, anticoagulation uh, around the time of uh, cardioversion for acute atrial fibrillation or flutter. And, and it's the two factors to consider is the duration of the arrhythmia uh, by the time you see them, and also the risk factors for stroke. You know, traditionally, we, we, we take the 48-hour rule, right? Like if someone has atrial fibrillation, acute atrial fibrillation or flooded less than 48 hours, it is, uh, quote-unquote, safe and reasonable to cardiovert them without being on, without ruling out left atrial clot, without anticoagulating. Whereas if someone had, you know, 67 hours of atrial fibrillation, then we shouldn't be cardioverting them because of a high, higher risk of stroke. So, you know, with the new guidelines, there's a bit of a shift with, with respect to that 40 hour cutoff, which is, and it depends on the patient's risk factors. So if someone has hemodynamically unstable, acute atrial fibrillation or flutter, definitely you need to cardiover them irrespective of whether they're anticoagulated or not. Uh, the next one is if they have new, uh, new onset uh, atrial fibrillation, less than 12 hours and no recent stroke or TIA, then you can cardiovert them and initiate OAC afterwards. And the third scenario is if they have uh, atrial fibrillation lasting anywhere from 12 to 48 hours and have a low CHAD score being zero to one, you can cardiovert them without ruling out left atrial clots, but then afterwards they should be anticoagulated. So the concept is that anyone who, who, is, who has AFib and getting cardioverted should be anticoagulated for at least four weeks after cardioversion. And if they have CHADS, uh, if they meet the CHAD 65 algorithm, they should be anticoagulated on a long-term basis if there are no bleeding contraindications. There are some patients uh, outlined by the CCS guidelines that if, if they have these conditions and they have atrial fibrillation acute, uh, they suggest that they, they should hold off on cardioverting them until you have either ruled out a left atrial clot with a transesophageal echo or initiated them with OAC for at least three weeks. So these are patients with uh, AFib with some other risk factors, which make them a higher risk of having a stroke. Uh, even though it's less than 14 hours, the guidelines recommend that we should hold off. So these are patients with valvular atrial fibrillation. So anyone with a, a, a prosthetic valve or mitral stenosis will be considered to, be, uh, to have valvular AF. 
if someone has uh, atrial fibrillation less than 12 hours, but a recent stroke or TIA uh, presenting with AFib, the recommendation is that we should hold off on cardioverting them unless you rule out left atrial clots with imaging or anticoagulate them for at least three weeks before doing a cardioversion, assuming that you know the patient is stable. The third scenario is uh, if AF duration lasting 12 to 48 hours with high CHAD score defined as any any score above two. So these are patients with you know some like longer than 12 hours but less than 48, but do have multiple risk factor for stroke. In that situation, once again, you should hold off on cardioverting unless you have anticoagulated them for more than three weeks or have done imaging to rule out clots. Uh, and the fourth scenario is uh, patients with AF lasting more than 48 hours. If they're not anticoagulated, there's a high chance they may have a clot, and, and therefore uh, it's recommended that they should be pre-treated with OAC for three weeks or once again, ruled out with imaging before you go ahead. So for all patients um, nowadays, you know, even though you have, let's say, uh, three hours of AF and a chance of zero, the recommendation is that they should be anticoagulated with four weeks of OAC uh, and longer if they have risk factor for stroke. That's great. Thank you. And just to clarify for the listeners, my understanding is the valvular atrial fibrillation, as you mentioned, falls within the category of needing the oral anticoagulant for three weeks or more before cardioversion, but any of the other circumstances you described um, with those cutoffs or CHADS um, thresholds is in the setting of non-valvular. Yeah, yeah. It's a good question. You know, the, the delineation between valvular and non-valvular is a subject of many papers and editorials in the literature, uh, and it evolves. Typically speaking, I think in 2022, we would consider quote-unquote valvular AF as someone with mitral stenosis, moderate or severe, or the presence of a prosthetic valve. Uh, those are the two that we would say valvular. Like So, so if someone has uh, significant mitral regurgitation native, that's not valvular AF per se. So that's kind of what, what we define as valvular AFib nowadays, uh, those two categories. Okay, that's very helpful. And in the setting where you are in meeting one of those three criteria to cardiovert upfront, you can give the oral anticoagulant as soon as possible, i.e. before the cardioversion when you're able. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah I think, that, yeah, that's, that's right. Or sometimes uh, we would give a shot of heparin before we cardiovert. Because there's some old data showing that within like 30 seconds after you restore sinus rhythm, you can already form some uh, smoke in the left atrial appendage. So there's so if if you really feel that uh, the patient is high risk for stroke, you can you can give a shot of IV heparin or even a dose of low grade heparin. Uh, but I think IV heparin will work faster in terms of the anticoagulant effects. A bolus of heparin, then cardioverts, and then start them on an OAC an hour or two later once they wake up from the anesthetics. That's very helpful. Great. Thank you. So I'm going to talk a little bit about anticoagulation um, as it relates to the CCS guidelines. So in the CCS guidelines, we know for stroke prevention, anyone with a CHADS2 of one, or if they're 65 years or older, receive anticoagulation. In 2018, the patients with subclinical atrial fibrillation lasting more than 24 hours or high-risk stroke with shorter duration are treated with oral anticoagulants. Can you expand on the evolution of the scoring criteria for anticoagulation in atrial fibrillation and the evidence behind this? 
Thanks. It's, a, it's an excellent question because this is one of the most often uh, scenarios that we deal with as electrophysiologists. The reason is that we manage patients with pacemakers. And if you have an atrial lead, it's going to see, you know, detect, look at, assess the atrium 24 7, 365. So, because of that, when we interrogate patients' devices, we often get these episodes of AFib detected by the atrial lead lasting for minutes or several hours. And it's one of the things that always we always got asked about if someone has a little bit of AFib, like a few minutes, even a few hours, you know, over a year of monitoring, do these patients need anticoagulation? I think the, the first hint that these patients, that, that this is actually clinically relevant, just even a little bit of AFib stems from the ASSERT trial, which was done by Dr. Jeff Healy from Hamilton. So in that trial, he enrolled about 2,000 patients who have uh, pacemakers with an atrial lead. And then he followed these patients over you know, several years and assessed what are the outcomes for patients who develop uh, pacemaker-detected atrial fibrillation versus not. And the bottom line is that any patients with, uh, with a pacemaker-detected AFib lasting more than six minutes actually have an increased risk of stroke compared to those without. And in particular, when they do the subgroup analysis, patients who have you know, continuous AFib lasting more than 24 hours detected by the device are, have, a, have the highest risk of stroke uh, compared to people with less clin- uh, pacemaker detected AFib versus none. So this kind of forms the basis for, for anticoagulating. Uh, having said that, the definitive randomized trials showing whether anticoagulating these short subclinical episodes uh, have not been completed. It's called the Artesia trial, also uh, being headed by Dr. Jeff Healy. Enrollment has completed 4,000 patients. Hopefully in the next two to three years, the trial will be presented and definitely will be a high impact trial. So that trial randomized patients with pacemaker detected AFib less than 24 hours to either apixaban or aspirin in a double blind fashion. So, so that would give us good insight as to whether anticoagulating these shorter, you know, subclinical pacemaker-detected AFib episodes would, would be helpful, neutral, or harmful, because there is some new data. There's something called a loop trial. It was published in a Lancet. Uh, it was presented in the American Heart Association late-breaking trial in 2021. There's a hint that, you know, we don't necessarily have to anticoagulate people with short duration AFib episodes, even though they have risk factor for stroke. So it's an evolving field. Right now, when you look at the CCS guidelines, they do recommend uh, anticoagulating people with risk factors for stroke, like a high CHAD score, let's say, uh, with subclinical AF lasting more than 24 hours. But it's still, the evidence is not that strong and hopefully in two to three years, it will be better. So, you know, given that this is the best we have in terms of guideline, I would stick with that. You know, if someone has uh, re- really high risk for stroke, let's say let's say they have presented with cardioembolic stroke, and you do see some AFib, even though it's only like an hour or thirty minutes, I think right now the clinical practice is to lean f- towards anticoagulating as as to not, given that if there's a strong sense that AFib is responsible for some degree of arterial thromboembolism already. That's really helpful background. Thank you. And we'll keep our eyes open for the results of that trial in in the near future. Um, Thinking a little bit about what we'll use as anticoagulation. So rather than warfarin, we're of course often prescribing our patients direct oral anticoagulants. What are some of the important trials and anticoagulation that compare warfarin to the DOACs that our listeners should know about? Mm -hmm. Great. So as you know, right now in Canada or in the world, there are four clinically available direct oral anticoagulants, apixaban, edoxaban, rivaroxaban, and dabigatran. 
Each of them have a pivotal phase three randomized uh, control trial comparing it to warfarin and uh, published you know, within the past seven to 10 years, uh, landmark trials published all in the New England Journal of Medicine. And they've done a lot of meta-analysis on this subject. So what we know is that as a group, these direct oral anticoagulants reduce the risk of stroke or systemic embolism uh, by uh, up to 20% compared to warfarin. Uh, and uh, these agents are just as safe as warfarin because when they look at uh, major bleeding risk, so this is substantial bleed, fatal bleeding, bleeding in which you lose more than 20 uh, grams per liter of hemoglobin or bleeding in which you need more than two units of packed red blood cell, red blood cell transfusions. Uh, these uh, DOAC agents as a group have a 19% reduction in major bleeding compared to warfarin. The p-value was 0.06 which was not statistically statistic significant, but there's a strong trend saying suggesting that these drugs are just as safe, if not safer than warfarin. So because of that, guidelines around the world, including Canada, US, Europe, have uh, systematically recommended that the agents should be um, preferably prescribed to warfarin unless there are contraindications. Uh, the main contraindications nowadays with DOAC use are uh, for patients with mechanical heart valves, because uh, there was actually a trial showing that patients treated with the Bicotran and DOAC had worse outcomes, more bleeding and more stroke compared to warfarin. So that's like an absolute contraindication. Um, the other ones which are important are that, that we tend to not prescribe DOACs are patients of atrial fibrillation in the context of significant mitral valve stenosis due to rheumatic heart disease. Uh, that, that population is felt to be at a high risk of stroke and the evidence is not there yet with respect to using DOAC for that population. The third population is a patients on hemodialysis or advanced CKD. So stage five CKD, anyone with a cranial clearance less than 15 mils per minute, you know, by label in Canada should be, should not be given a DOAC agents. Uh, so those are the main groups. Great. Thank you. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit to talking about atrial fibrillation in the context of non-cardiac ICU illness or post-op illness. So we understand that this is not really captured in the guidelines, but have been thinking about how to manage um, an anticoagulation in the context of non-cardiac ICU illness or post-operative atrial fibrillation. So post-op atrial fibrillation more than 48 hours with either multiple stroke risk factors or other atrial fibrillation comorbidities may be a reason to anticoagulate. Is there evidence behind this? And, and what do you often see being done in practice? Thanks. This is a very important question. Um, and, and I would venture to say that this will be one of the most reasons for getting a consult as an internist. Uh, when you see post-operative atrial fibrillation or someone who developed AFib in the ICU in the context of sepsis, uh, who have never had AFib before and they ask you, you know, what to do. There is a, a strong school of thought that these AFib episodes tend to be transients, i.e. when it's a secondary type of AFib. So in a context of sepsis or post-operative inflammation, there, there's a belief in the, in the community that you know, these episodes of AF tend to be self-resolving. And that by the time the patient improves, the, the AFib should not recur anymore. Having said that, you know, there are no guidelines uh, proving or disproving whether this is true. And there's no guidelines saying that you should uh, categorically anticoagulate these people. I think you can understand why, you know, categorically anticoagulating these people may not be a wise thing in all patients, because let's say post-operative state, there's going to be a risk of bleeding. So you don't want to be anticoagulating people unnecessarily. 
and that hasn't been you know assessed with RCTs. Secondly, um, so so that's one of the dilemma. The fact that there's a high risk of bleeding in the post-operative uh, patient population and also the belief that the AFib is transient. So in terms of what we do nowadays is that, you know, I, I think so someone who never had AFib developed AFib, you know, in a context of a serious illness or uh, after non-cardiac surgery or after cardiac surgery, if there are a lot of risk factors for stroke, high, really high CHAD score, history of cardioembolic looking like stroke. Um, you know, I think it's not reasonable to place them on anticoagulation for several months, provided that you know, the risk of bleeding is not high. And then reassess them in about three months uh, to, with a holter, extended monitoring, 14-day holters, let's say, to see if there's any residual AF. If, if you do feel that the patient's risk of stroke is high, I think it's not unreasonable to keep going with anticoagulation. Uh, because there is emerging data showing that, you know, if you have AFib, it tends to come back, even though it's after a, a major illness or after non-cardiac surgery. If on the other hand, uh, the risk of stroke is not that high and there is a higher than expected risk of bleeding, you know, I, th I don't think anticoagulating these people will be necessary, but it underscores the need for monitoring for these people because they, they would be at risk for developing AF months, you know, down the road and, and that, that, that will be treated like a regular kind of, you know, the, the regular kind of AFib that we see and we have to anticoagulate as per risk factors, i.e. CHAD score. That makes sense. And that's really helpful. And is it fair to say that like significant post-operative atrial fibrillation or ICU related AFib is that that might last more than 48 hours? Like I've seen that number being used in the literature and I'm just curious, is that the threshold yeah. which you would consider significant or is there not, is it not as clear, clear cut? Yeah, to be honest, there is no cutoff. Um, the only guideline that made this, the timing, like a, a time cutoff is the Canadian cardiovascular guidelines back, one of the older ones, they used a 72 hour as a cutoff, but to be honest, it's arbitrary. Because what if someone had three 24-hour episodes? Like, is it cumulative or it's, you know, continuous? I, I think, generally speaking, um, anyone with more than 24 hours continuous AFib will be classified as significant. This is extrapolating from the previous question uh, issue we talked about with subclinical AF, where if you have more than 24 hours, you're considered to be at a much a higher risk category of stroke. So this is being extrapolated perhaps in, a, in, in this post-operative uh, critical illness-related ICU situation. That's helpful. Thank you. So moving into our last question, if a patient has atrial fibrillation and they have either an acute coronary syndrome or recent percutaneous coronary intervention, how are antithrombotics and anticoagulants managed on balance of risks of bleeding and clotting and thrombosis? Thanks. This is actually a quite a complicated topic with many permutations. Uh, to be honest, if you ask uh, 50 cardiologists, you might get 20 to 30 different methods of doing this. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you what, um, what the guidelines suggest, and then I'll tell you kind of uh, what we, generally speaking, cardiologists would do in, in actual clinical practice. Great. So if you have, yeah, great. If you have a patient with atrial fibrillation with coronary disease who has, uh, who underwent a stent PCI 
or had an acute coronary syndrome without without a PCI, this is how we would manage. So let's start with uh, elective PCI without high-risk features for thrombotic cardiovascular events. So these are patients who undergo who have stable coronary disease, undergo elective PCI, and they don't have any high-risk features for uh, thrombosis, like multivessel disease, multiple stents, uh, complex complex uh, PCI. So it's important to discuss with the interventional cardiologist on what the true risk of thrombosis is to get a sense. So here, communication is very key. For these patients, the recommendation from the CCS guidelines is that um, dual therapy with the use of clopidogrel with an oral anticoagulant uh, for one to 12 months post-PCI will, will suffice. So you have options. You can go dual therapy just for a month, or you can extend it to 12 months, depending on the patient's risk of bleeding and also the risk of thrombotic events. After a year, then you can likely stop the clopidogrel and continue on with the oral anticoagulant uh, if the patient has meets the indications based on a CHAD-65 algorithm. Uh, let's say we're dealing with a patient who has an acute coronary syndrome and underwent PCI or a patient who underwent elective PCI with high-risk features for thrombosis. So these are patients with multivessel disease, stent, history of stent thrombosis, for instance. Based on the CCS guidelines, the recommendation will be triple therapy, uh, which will consist of oral anticoagulation plus aspirin 81 milligrams plus clopidogrel uh, from anywhere between one day to one month. Tip, uh, so that's the recommendation by the guidelines. After one month, then you can stop the aspirin and, uh, and go on to dual therapy with uh, oral anticoagulants with clopidogrel up to 12 months post-PCI. And after 12 months, uh, provided that the patient has no ischemic events, you can stop the P2I12 inhibitor clopidogrel and uh, leave the patients on OAC. Um, and the third scenario is uh, involves patients with acute coronary syndrome with, who are medically managed, so no PCI. So in these patients, the CCS recommendation is dual therapy with uh, oral anticoagulants with clopidogrel uh, for one to 12 months post-ACS and after 12 months, uh, stop the clopidogrel and be on solo OAC. Uh, please note that in the CCS guidelines, it will, with respect to the choice of P2I12 inhibitor, they only uh, mention clopidogrel. Uh, the other two drugs, ticagrelor and prazogrel, are less well studied and are believed to carry a bit of a higher risk bleeding rate, uh, so it's not recommended. So that's uh, what the guidelines say. In terms of what we actually do in practice, it's similar, but there's a bit more individualization. I would say that any most patients who uh, have atrial fibrillation and have an indication for long-term OAC undergoing PCI uh, will likely be treated with triple therapy for a month provided that there's no high-risk bleeding issues. And after a month, then we would stop the aspirin and leave the patient on dual therapy, uh, OAC plus clopidogrel. In some patients with a high, like high thrombotic risk, you know, operators would uh, suggest that they be treated with ticagrelor uh, early on and perhaps step down to clopidogrel after a few months. Um, so, and, and after 12 months, you know, it's quite usual practice for people to stop all the antiplatelets and only leave the patients on oral anticoagulants uh, for, uh, uh, for AFib stroke prevention purposes. 
That's great. Thank you. And just to confirm uh, sort of for our listeners, this is in patients who have an indication for oral anticoagulant, i.e. their age of 65 or above, or yes. have a CHADS of one or more. Otherwise, you know, we'd be looking at a different algorithm, assuming their CHADS was yeah. zero. Yeah. Yeah. So if they don't have AFib, then the OAC is not part of the equation. They'll be treated with the dual antiplatelet therapy. Right. And, and that's then, a different set of guidelines. Right. And then if they have AFib, but their age is 42 or their CHADS is zero, then we wouldn't be thinking about the oral anticoagulant. Yep. Um, we would yep. just be thinking yep. about the thing. Yeah. So these are patients who uh, have AFib and have uh, indication for long-term oral anticoagulation. So age more than 65 or CHADS one or greater, according to the CCS guidelines. Perfect. Thank you. No, thanks for the opportunity to uh, allow me to speak. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to our listeners about this important topic and a high yield one for Royal College and other exams. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode on the CCS CHRS Comprehensive Guidelines for the Management of Atrial Fibrillation released in 2020. Special thanks to Dr. Andrew Ha for joining us today to discuss these guidelines. This episode was recorded and produced by Shaliza Halani. The Internet's Guide to Podcast series is produced by Catherine Luer and Shaliza Halani. Executive producers Allison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Kirianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Vasantha Mohan. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.